If you're like me, you might hear estate planning and go, ugh, gross. You might think to yourself, I'm not sure why I'd bother with that. Estate planning is only for the uber rich. Tallgrass begs to differ. Tallgrass founding attorneys Laurel and Riley think everyone should have an estate plan. They know estate planning seems untouchable to a lot of folks, like something you have to do inside a stuffy law firm of stuffy McLawyer Pants Esquire. But I promise you, Tallgrass is nothing like that. For one, they work out of their home so their clients can feel at home. They obsess, because they're nerds, over making clients feel like they belong and are supposed to be there. Also, their kids might make an appearance. They will take time to answer all of your questions, even the uncomfortable ones. They will work relentlessly to make sure your plan's exactly what you need to feel secure and at peace. So if you've been putting off planning for what's going to happen after you've gone, it's time for you to give Tallgrass a call at 918-770-8940 and start your plan today. Or visit their website at tallgrassestateplanning.com and schedule a free initial consultation. For free! It's right there on the website. And of course, there's more, because this is a podcast ad. If you tell them you're a Pot for Good listener, they're going to take 25% off their service fees. Just tell them Pot for Good sent you. Stop thinking estate planning isn't for you and give Tallgrass a call today at 918-770-8940 or on their website, which I'm not going to read out to you again. It's in our show notes. Thank you, Tallgrass. Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we learn from those doing good in Tulsa, why they care, what we can do, and most importantly, what you can do. Pod for Good is produced and edited by Rant9 Productions, which is me, and can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. I am, as always... Your chief philanthropod, Jesse Ulrich. And I'm your vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller. And today our guest is Carlos Moreno, the author of a new book titled The Victory of Greenwood. Today we talk to Carlos about all the victories of Greenwood. We also talk about tearing down the IDL and giving that land back to Greenwood. And we talk about many of the untold stories, like the Greenwood resident who invented the internet and not in the Al Gore way of inventing the internet. Which is just saying you invented the internet and then that being, having that held against you for 30 years? Yep. Never say anything wrong ever. He'll be talking more about this book uh, with Magic City Books on Monday, May 24th, which you can watch on Facebook. And he'll be doing a book signing at All Souls Unitarian Church on May 25th at 6 p.m. And who knows, maybe a couple of your favorite podcasters might show up to get their own books. Yes, maybe. At least one of them. It was me pre-ordered the book, so I'll get mine already signed. Is it too late to pre-order them? I don't think so. Go to www.victoryofgreenwood.com. Why are we whispering? I don't know. I'm going to add this part out. Leave it in. Enjoy. Well, we are very excited to have Carlos back on the podcast for a second time, and this time in person. So we are recording on what's today. May 10th, uh, we are 19 days away from the centennial of the Tulsa Race Massacre. And we brought Carlos back on because when we spoke to him last time, he was working on a book. And now he's waiting to get this book printed, The Victory of Greenwood. Carlos, hello. Hey. Good so, to be back. Yes. Back in person. It's going to sound great. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just happy to be able to look someone in the eye when I talk to them. And they, I, they, they know I'm looking them in the eye, right? Instead right. of through a camera. You've finished the book. So what 
I think we interviewed you in like October or November. So what in those months, in those eight months, what has changed about your thoughts on not only the story we tell ourselves about Greenwood, but just sort of the history of the 20th century writ large? Yeah, a couple of things. While I was writing the book and I was talking to somebody about else about this yesterday, it was such a surreal experience to be reading, for example, about the Tulsa Police Department deputizing 200 people to loot and burn a neighborhood. You know, reading about that happening 100 years ago and then reading about happening, that happening in real time in places like Minneapolis and Portland. And watching the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th and who was involved. And yes, there was a mob, but there were also people in power that enabled that mob, right? And having those same dynamics show up in newspaper articles about the race massacre 100 years ago. It's just, it was, it was weird. It was shocking in some ways, but not surprising in others. It, it was just a very surreal time to be in it and, and also be researching very, very, very similar events with incredibly similar dynamics. Is it a Faulkner quote that the past isn't even the past? It's not even the present? Yeah, the, there's, a, there's a quote that I pull from Utah Phillips, and the name of the album is The Past Didn't Go Anywhere. So his kind of whole premise is, we think in terms of the past, present, and the future, but it's everything's happening at the same time kind of deal. And I guess the second thing is I keep reflecting on how Tulsa always gets in its own way. And since, since we spoke last, learning about all the things that, you know, frankly, the commission has done to sabotage its own mission and vision, the fact that the Greenwood Rising Museum, the families who have contributed artifacts to that museum don't get free admission to the museum, the fact that Governor Kevin Stitt, who's a member of the commission, just signed into law policy that says that we can't talk about race, a critical race theory. We can't analyze policies from a racial perspective, which really limits our discussion about Oklahoma's history from a Native American's perspective, from a Black perspective, from almost any racial group perspective. I mean, that's been Oklahoma's history problem since the beginning, right? Our, at least Chris and I grew up here. And so I imagine Chris also had a land run day in elementary school, right? And we had a section, I think, of middle school that was Oklahoma history, and it was just about the white people who settled here right before statehood and after, and that was it. And I could tell then they were obviously leaving some things out, but the more you learn, the more like, it's not that we can't teach racial history in Oklahoma. It's that we can only teach white history in Oklahoma. Right? Am I wrong? Tell me I'm wrong. Well, I mean, I just wonder, for example, like you look at the founding of the state, right? This was originally intended to be the first, first idea that was floated was for this to be Indian territory forever for, until the waters continue, until the water stopped flowing and the sun, sun stopped shining or whatever the treaty said back then. So that didn't last very long, right? That, that was only a couple of decades. So I guess the water stopped running <laughs> yeah, after a couple of decades. Mm -hmm. But then very, very close to 1907, which is when Oklahoma becomes a state, Another idea is floated for Oklahoma to become an all-black state. There were 50 all-black towns 
And Edmund McCabe and some other activists at the time were kind of floating this idea of, yeah, well, let's continue to build all black communities and just make this an all black state. And um, Alpha Alpha Bill Murray kind of put the kibosh on that whole idea, got all of his cronies together and formed the state of Oklahoma in Guthrie in 1907. And Senate Bill 1, or 1, establishes the races. So says anybody who isn't black can ride in a train car, like no problems, completely fine, absolutely free to ride whatever train car you want. But if you're black, you cannot ride in a train car with anybody else. And what they ended up doing, what the train companies ended up doing when, when the, while they were passing through Oklahoma is that they would have special train cars for black passengers that were behind the animals. So imagine riding in a train car in August in Oklahoma behind train cars full of animals. It's like it's not a pleasant experience, right? So, so can we talk about the fan founding of our own state, right? Can we, you know, can, can we talk about the housing ordinance in Tulsa that passed in 1916 that said if there's a neighborhood that's 75% or more white that a black person can't live there? Like, can, can we have these conversations anymore? That's that's my big question about about this whole 17, what is it, 1775? You know, in reading your book, one of the interesting tidbits was that originally they tried to put the Jim Crow laws into the constitution of the state that I guess uh, Mr. Roosevelt came back and said, no, <laughs> you can't do that. So instead they just took it out and then made it the first laws of the state instead. Yeah. And you see that throughout, throughout the South and throughout formerly Confederate states, like, like the state of Virginia is a I keep bringing it. It's a perfect example. You look at voter registration in the state of Virginia in 1880, it's 50% black and white. And when Virginia rewrites its constitution, voter registration among the black population of Virginia goes all the way back down to zero. It's just like, this is intentional. <laughs> There's no escaping that. Well, and now we're seeing in some, of, in some cases, you know, Jim Crow laws take two. You know, a lot of states are passing or trying to pass restrictive voting laws to try to limit the power of minorities that they've been able to claw back over the last hundred years. Yeah. We had a law that worked the voting, the, the voting rights act part of the civil rights act of 64 and 65 worked. And we were like, well, it works. We don't need it anymore. That's not how the, that's not how racism works. <laughs> it, it wasn't that people stopped being racist is that they couldn't. It's just, I mean, but we can't talk about that now in school. No, no, of course not. I mean, and here's the thing. It may, maybe school is not the best places to have these conversations, but the fact that it's legislated that we can't have those conversations means that a child today won't ever have to think about the fact that in, in the past, in their family's past, in their city's past, in their state's past, wrongs were done to people who look different from them. And maybe as they get older, they should remember that. So they have empathy. And the people who had those wrongs done against them and their families don't have a choice, but to have feeling negative feelings about those things because it happened to their families. Like my, my father had a paper route in, so his, his dad, my grandfather uh, died in 1960. So my dad would have been 10 years old. He and his two siblings had to get jobs to sort of make up that lost income. My grandmother had to go to work as well. So he had a paper route through his neighborhood in San Jose, California. And the entire, the entire, and then we're talking about a Mexican working class immigrant, you know, neighborhood in San Jose, California, was bulldozed to build Highway 280. My dad certainly feels 
pretty upset that his neighborhood was bulldozed to Bill Highway. And that and and we know now that that generational trauma is passed down through the generations. So so I have it. My daughter has it. You know, and so when you talk about these issues, it's like we can pretend <laughs> that our children and grandchildren won't have certain feelings about what might have happened to their neighborhood in certain points of our history. A highway was you know, two highways, Highway 244 and uh, 75 were built through Greenwood. And we have families who are living in Greenwood today whose houses would have been burned down in 21 and then bulldozed in 71. There are hundreds of families in Greenwood where that's the case. And so can we, can we, does that mean that we now can't talk about the federal highway program, which happened in the completion of that was 71. UCAT was opened in 91. Some of that land was still being taken over in 96. In fact, the Greenwood Unity Heritage Plan has eminent domain and bulldozing of quote unquote blighted houses. We're talking about 2019. So that was, that was two years ago. So can we not talk about that either? Can we not talk? I guess they won't be able to watch the Killers of the Flower Moon yeah. in school because, I mean, that's, that's a case where people were, white people were taking over the effectively custody of 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 kids so that they could steal their property. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it it's fascinating to me too because a lot of the people that support this law and laws like it are the same people who complain about the younger generation being coddled, not all these things about how the younger generation, the the everyone gets a trophy generations and everything like that. And yet here they are ostensibly saying that well, we can't talk about this stuff in school because it's it's damaging to the children that are there and stuff like that. So it just feels like to me that it's transparent that, that it isn't for the reasons that they claim it is. Yeah, exactly. I'm, like, I'm concerned about uh, what about the children who have age citizens mm -hmm. and have Osage citizens in their family and have, and may have had this happen in their family, in right. their history. So yeah. what about their feelings? Mm -hmm. I, I would like to ask the Oklahoma legislator and the governor do they want their kids to learn about these, these horrific things and these important parts of U.S. history in pop culture? Because that's what's going to happen. Like, yeah. for example, I didn't know I wasn't taught this in school when I learned about the mass immigration of Chinese workers to build the railroad tracks. I learned that from Briscoe County Jr. <laughs> that's not yeah. the way you should learn about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I learned about the land run from far and away. Of course, I was in California, so I didn't get the, you know, we in yeah. California, we got the gold rush and we got Stanford University and all that sort of the history. Yeah. That was a history lesson in California. Yeah. Every so, state has their, their yeah. trauma that they right. Right. either not embrace, but either deal with or ignore. So, but we're getting away from the fact that the book is yes. called Victory of Green sure. So let's talk about yeah. what that victory is. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't. Franklin on the cover for the obvious reason that it was his lawsuit that paved the way for Greenwood to rebuild. And, and, and it did, there's film footage from 1921 to 1928 that shows a thriving Greenwood once again. So ultimately Tate Brady's plot to steal Greenwood's land was unfulfilled. I learned from the artist collective that is now at his former mansion now called skyline mansion that he late in his life wasn't, he committed suicide quite young but during this revitalization of greenwood period he would you know stand out he could stand out on his balcony and see greenwood being rebuilt so see see his plans just totally crumble 
So I thought that was a little bit of an interesting little tidbit of history. But Greenwood goes on to have so many other victories. Count Basie stayed here in 1927. And the whole sort of big band swing jazz sound that migrates to Chicago and, and ends up finding itself in the Harlem Renaissance and, and all that begins in Greenwood, which is an amazing piece of music history and amazing to think of that that sound wouldn't be what it is without Greenwood. And just chapter after chapter, there's just so many stories of victory. Dr. Olivia Hooker not only becomes the first black woman to serve in the U.S. Coast Guard, but does groundbreaking work in child psychology, Change, kind of changes that world, and, and is a professor at Fordham University, like well into her 90s. Just amazing to think. Michael Jackson had family and visited here in the 70s. There's just so many connections to, to sort of national and, and world history. Emmett, Emmett J. McHenry who's in one of my last chapters, grew up on Greenwood, graduated Booker T, and founded Network Solutions. In the early 90s, if you registered a domain name, you were buying it from Emmett J. McHenry. So why isn't his name in the same sentence as Tim Berners-Lee and Bill Gates and Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs? Well, I can think of at least one reason. Well, exactly. (laughs) The racist one. And so I just, I, I wanted to absolutely put a spotlight on all victories. Of all of these people, just amazing, incredible historical icons that we should be. There should be a statue of Emmett J. McHenry somewhere in Tulsa. There should be a statue of Olivier J. Hooker, like somewhere. There should be recognition of Eddie Faye Gates and her work. Amos T. Hall, Homer Johnson. We could go on and on and on about all of these people who just changed the country, changed the world, and, and we don't talk about them in our history. Well, and I think one of the things that was fascinating about the book is it seems like too often when we talk about the race massacre, we talk about it as one large group of people. There are a few players that we may call out specifically related to that, but we leave out the stories of all of the people that were there before and thereafter. And it felt like that's what this was about. It was about the stories of all of the people. And yeah, that was pretty intentional. I. I didn't want to put just another history book on the bookshelves. There's plenty of those. Scott Ellsworth, Tim Madigan, Alfred Brophy, all those guys have done wonderful work. And I, I pulled from their work. You know, I, I researched what everyone had written before me about Greenwood. And I, didn't, I really didn't want to put uh, another sort of academic history book on the bookshelves. I was like, yeah, that's already been done. I don't need to, do, I don't need to duplicate their efforts. When I read Shamari Will's Black Fortunes is really when I, I had had a couple of chapters in sort of draft form and pieces here and there. But when I read his book and the way he told the story from a biographical perspective, you know, told the story of the people and, and you're teaching history, but you're teaching history through the, le- through the eyes of those people. When I read that and kind of realized like, oh, I could tell the story this way. That's when I sort of really found like, okay, this is how I really want to do this. Um, and I chose 20 people to profile and, and kind of structure the book that way. Yeah. And even you talked about, there's a lot of people in there that had national impact, international impact, but even some like Simon Barry, who had a profound impact on Tulsa. Arguably the reason that we have the mass transit system we have. Absolutely. He was sort of the 
the the first George Kaiser in funding a park and gifting it to the city, you know, all the amazing things he did, you know, and just learning about those things, I honestly sometimes feel a little cheated that I didn't know about these people before. Yeah, we see these names all over Tulsa, right? Charles Page Boulevard and and Lewis Avenue and New Block Park and Lacey Park. You know, we just, we see these names and their parks and streets and buildings and, and we don't really think about them too much. But when you start kind of asking the question like, okay, who is this park named after? You start finding some pretty interesting things. Um, so I wanted to pull all that out. You know, I wanted people to kind of recognize their own city in these stories. What was the, I mean, I, I don't want, I don't want you to have to pick your favorite, but <laughs> what was the, like the one victory that you were like this, like this is this one, this one's special to me, right? Not, not because of I don't know, any particular parts of it. Cause these are all very sort of unique, but also kind of similar stories of people's successes that have been just sort of erased by the standard Oklahoma history. Yeah. I think, I think as far as like my biggest find in terms of a hidden figure, people who don't know about would be discovering Jake Simmons Jr. He single-handedly brought Phillips Petroleum to Africa and turned the company from being a few billion dollars to Phillips Petroleum. You know, yeah. like, like he is singly responsible for Phillips Petroleum Global imprint. And we can talk about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing in Jake Simmons Jr.'s dealing. It's very clear that he was always after a win-win situation when he went into places like Nigeria and Ghana. But I would say personally that the story that had most personal impact for me was probably Emmett J. McHenry. Just because I grew up in Silicon Valley. When I was born, Silicon Valley was a peach orchard. And leading into the 80s and 90s, Silicon Valley becomes Silicon Valley, right? And so Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak and people like Nolan Bushnell, who started Atari and Antioch Cheese Pizza, by the way. You got to have a place to put your arcade games That's once right. you've invented the arcade games, right? Sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. To have grown up in that internet culture, entrepreneurial culture, and not just internet, but Pixar started there. ILM was a few miles from my house. Return of the Jedi was shot, you know, <laughs> not too far away from where I grew up to have grown up around all that and know that. And then, and then, you know, move to Tulsa in 98 and not know that a significant piece of internet history came from right here in Greenwood. It was just incredible for me to find out about, read about, learn about, study. And then I was lucky enough to have a conversation with him at J. McHenry. And we sort of nerded out about <laughs> TCP IP, which is the protocol that allows computers to servers to talk to each other and the domain name system. And, and so we kind of geeked out about that for about an hour. So it was just really an honor and a privilege to talk to him and, and his accomplishments and that time mm -hmm. in his life and in my life, because at that time I was learning how to build computers and build websites and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was a world that was new to me at the time. It was new to him. It was new to everybody at the time. We were all trying to figure it out. And so to come back and be able to tell his story and hit and kind of place him where he needs to be in history. And, and hopefully more people will help me do that. I really just had a, a great time writing about him. Did you talk to him about 
what we're going to do when, when we run out of IP addresses? <laughs> I, I did not get a chance to ask him that question. It's coming. Yeah, for, yeah, for our nerds out there, we're running out of numbers. Anyway, it's not, yes. it's, it's not important yet. One thing, another thing that I didn't know about, I think I could probably say that I should just say in general, most of the stuff in your book, I didn't know about, that. that. <laughs> but something that is incredibly controversial now that actually came close to happening uh, immediately after the race massacre. And that was reparations. And it's fascinating to me how close Tulsa actually got to funding and paying out reparations and how now it feels like we can't even have the conversation with, with our city government. So that was something that was really fascinating to me. Yeah, that was really interesting to write about. So recently, and I'm talking about, I think this might have been in either 2018 or 2019, the Tulsa Chamber released all of their meeting minutes from the year 1921. And Mike Neal basically said, we're going to be transparent about this. We don't know what's in these meeting minutes but we're just going to release them to the public and be really just honest and transparent about what we all discovered together as a city. And a really interesting story emerges from that. The fact that at the time, LJ Martin, who had, who had been mayor of Tulsa and moved on to be on the board of, of the chamber of commerce, led a committee and said, we need to pay reparations for Greenwood. He made Cyrus Avery, his treasurer, Cyrus Avery later goes on to design Route 66. So another, again, recognizable name in, in our city's history and in the country's history. So it's, so it's LJ Martin, Cyrus Avery, and they put together this committee to collect donations and pay reparations for Greenwood. And this was the, the day out. I mean, this was June 2nd. And they, so they start forming the committee. The committee has a meeting on June 7th. And so this is all in, in the meeting, meeting minutes from the, from the chamber. And the mayor and the city commission put so much political pressure on them that by June 15th, they all resign. They basically write a letter to the mayor and the city commission and say, you know, you've made it impossible for us to do our jobs. It's very clear that this is something that you don't want. And so all of us resign. Goodbye. Peace. We're out. And another committee is put in place called the Public Welfare Board, which is led by Tate Brady. Yeah. Whose first action <laughs> is to say, nope, we're not going to pay reparations. All of this money is going to be turned over to the Red Cross, and we are going to have nothing whatsoever to do with paying back anyone. There's a personal note to someone who I will not mention, who I argue about whether to stay on something and fight or to resign in protest. That is why you don't resign in protest. <laughs> I mean, not that they, it's not that they would have been able to accomplish reparations anyway. We don't know that for sure, but... You know, at least you're there making the other person feel bad about it, right? But if you're not there, they don't have to worry about it. Yeah, I really wonder, I would love to go back in time and sort of interview either either one of them, LJ Martin or Cyrus Avery, particularly Cyrus Avery, and just ask like, like what, what did you do next? Like, did you ever fight again for reparations or was that something, was that just a fight that you gave up? Well, and part of their reasoning for reparations was because the insurance companies were refusing to pay out. So like, well, somebody's got to got to pay for this. But, exactly. And you wonder because of the time and because of the people involved, if the pressure was more than just political. I mean, Tate Brady is a known member of the Ku Klux Klan and they weren't above doing more than just political pressure to to get sure to get people to do what they wanted. Yeah. 
Yeah, you see a bunch of ads in the Tulsa world at the time encouraging landowners in Greenwood to sell their land. So you see these ads show up in the Tulsa world and the Tulsa Tribune at the time. And so there's this real community effort to for Greenwood residents not to sell their land, to hold hold fast to what you have and, and build a shack or put up a tent or just do something that proves that you're going to stay here. And that combined with BC Franklin's lawsuit is really what allows Greenwood to to rebuild. So, and I think the Red Cross pl- did play a big part in there being at least one institution that Greenwood could look to to say, there's someone helping us. There's someone out there that's got our back, that's helping us. Uh, the Red Cross collected donations nationwide and churches too would go on these tours nationwide and they would collect donations of clothing and money and food and things like that that would all be um, shipped back to Booker T. Washington, which at the time was four pretty large brick buildings that hadn't been damaged by the attack on Greenwood. They were the only four buildings that were basically left completely intact. Vernon AME, the basement and the, and the first floor were, the basement was undamaged. The first floor was partially damaged, but the rest of the, the rest of the church was, was burnt down on the fire. So, uh, but Booker T was left completely or relatively unscathed. I find myself wondering like how many sort of defeats and slapdowns a group of people can take before they just quit and leave. Right. But of course, wherever they go, there's going to be some sort of generational trauma they're going to have to deal with. But again, I keep going back to the effect of what you called your book and what that says about resiliency and what that says about both what a group can do and what is the most sort of seriously spiteful thing a group can do to annoy the people who are oppressing them. And that is to continue to succeed over and over and over again. And, but I, I can't advocate for that. You can't be like, no, you have to struggle and suffer because you're going to be okay. It's not going to be great, but it's going to be okay. Like, I don't know what to do as a, as what Dr. View called us co-conspirators here for, for black Telsons, for Latinx Telsons, for indigenous Telsons and Oklahomans. Like what, you know, and I don't like asking my, my guests this, but I always end up doing it anyway, <laughs> is what, what power do we hold? What can we do? Yeah. In spite of all of the like missed opportunities and just straight up, I'll just say it just a straight up terrible way that the commission today is handling this whole situation. Your big keynote event, your keystone event is a, a golf tournament at Southern Hills. Just as a reminder to our listeners, didn't let Jews until the 90s. And I read an article in 1990 that said that there had never been a black member of Southern Hills. So I don't know if that's still the case. I can't think of a whiter sport either. That's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you lacrosse know. maybe. But lacrosse, no, lacrosse is, native. is native. Yeah, I was going to say. That's true. It was yeah. just, it was just not, plundered. I spent time in see, lacrosse, see? Wisconsin not too long ago. My, yeah. my, my, um, my privilege they're showing. Yeah. So. What I mentioned about the museum, you know, not the people who contributed their own personal family belongings as artifacts in the museum aren't being, you know, given free membership. And, and just, where the, where's the money? Just, where's the just, revenue going to go? There's just so many things that are just either mishandled or just straight up wrong. And, and claiming that they aren't a political organization, so they can't put pressure on their right, members. Right, so they never spoke out against Lankford. Mm-hmm. They did, to their credit, spe- speak out um, against Kevin Stitt's bill, which kind of, again, calls into questions like, okay, so are you political or are you not? 
you can you can be political about critical race theory, but you can't be political about an attack on the U.S. Capitol. I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Where do you draw the line there? Mm -hmm. But in spite of all that, there are still victories. There's uh, the Legacy Festival that's happening, again, in spite of and not empowered by um, the commission. Fire in Little Africa is just such a... I don't know if you've heard of it, heard any of the music that's I, I, coming out yeah, of this I heard, project. I heard, I heard Shine, you know. Yeah, their new video is pretty awesome. It is just so well done, so well produced, so unique a sound. Yep. I think, I'm just going to say it right here and now. And if I'm wrong, you know, so be it. But I'm going to make the prediction. So the coasts have had their chance, have had their, you know, time in the spotlight in the hip hop world. Atlanta has had its time in the spotlight. I think by the time this Fire in Little Africa album is done and Motown, you know, fully rolls out everything that's happening, Tulsa and OKC are going to be the next sort of mm -hmm. mecca of hip hop. It's the stuff that, the stuff that Steph Simon's doing, the stuff that Tones Beach is doing on these records is just so astounding. I just, and it, 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 it's a vibe that just embodies the communal spirit of Greenwood in a way that I don't think has ever, I mean, I can't think of an example in hip hop that's shown this sort of, we've got your back communal spirit mm -hmm. that Greenwood has always yeah. had since 1905, since probably before 1905, mm -hmm. right? And they just so perfectly captured it in all the things they're doing from Steph Simon's Born on Black, Black Wall Street album. Yeah. To the new single. I, I just think we're just going to keep seeing more of it. And it's just going to, I hope that they win Grammy awards and win every single award that's out there again, in spite of everything. It's, you know, trying to sort of quash the grassroots stuff that's going on around here. Should we transition into highway talk? No. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I do have one question about 244, though, is Tulsa, I mean, every city likes to complain about the construction and cutting off of ways that just slow everyone down. But is it just me or is 244 one of the most well-maintained highways that you've ever seen? I never see a lane shut down. It's always the, there's no mess up in the, in the, in the concrete. Like it just, it's, it's perfect right where they knock down Greenwood and East Tulsa and like they killed Kendall, that's, that's they killed Kendall Whittier too. Yeah. It was, it was the first suburb in, in Tulsa and it was, it was a thriving, it was a thriving, you know, little community. It was also destroyed by absolutely by the highway system. Yeah. Well, I mean, cause you drive, you, you drive down 169, you drive to, up and down Broken Arrow Expressway and you're like, well, these are industrial quarters we are driving through. And then you get on 244. Maybe it's a sign that it isn't used as much and therefore is unnecessary yeah, and we can get rid of it. I mean, uh, the, the Department of Transportation shut down entire sections of the IDL while we've been doing all these bridge repairs. No effect on drive times, no effect on retail, no effect on... There wasn't like this mass protest of like, you shut down my highway. <laughs> you know, people just found a way to get around. Found a way to get to where they were going some other way, going either through downtown or using the surface streets or using another highway. Uh, so I think ODOT just proved to Tulsa that the IDL is completely unnecessary. <laughs> and when we finish the Gilcrease you know, loop, which I railed against for many years, it'll be even more redundant, right? Because you'll be able to just 
get on the Gilcrease loop and go to where you're going, get to where you're going. There's kind of this new movement. And interestingly enough, BMX, the new BMX complex that's going in at the old Evan Finstube site, they're in favor of seeing Highway 244 come down through Greenwood, through the downtown area. The Thai pros are really behind this. And now that there's federal, you know, money for it, who knows? ODOT might take a second look at it and say, well, if there, if there's funding available and we can do it and the city wants it, then I, we can, we can. The city of uh, a multitude of highways underground, it is possible. Like it can be done. But you don't even need that. I mean, yeah, I, I'm saying you're taking. Okay. So it takes an extra two minutes because now you're, you're going around the lower portion of downtown instead of going straight across the top of downtown. Yeah doesn't make that big of a difference and you free up this beautiful historic neighborhood to continue to to rebuild like do i really need to get off the broken air expressway to get on 75 for 30 seconds to get off on 7th street no i don't yeah right exactly yeah it, i mean i'm i'm glad it's being discussed because it is not necessary and would do so much to we already have the train tracks dividing parts of town like we don't need this other huge entity literally, literally shadowing Greenwood yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you would have asked me five years ago, if it was possible for them to tear down that upper part of the IDL, I would have said no, never in my lifetime. But to see the Biden administration embrace this idea and say, well, these highways were put through almost exclusively black and brown neighborhoods. Let's do something to repair that. I think is a great step forward. I would and if there's any other city that if there's any city that needs it, it's Tulsa. Cuz you're you're talking about generational wealth that was stolen not once but twice. So Jesse, I feel like now is the time for you to talk about your most hated oh, highway. Oh, the, the 1 mile highway in Detroit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like it, I, I don't know about this. When the Pete uh, Buttigieg highways are racist thing came out, and people were going, "How dare you say that?" They're like, oh, I think it was Vox was like, "Let's just remind people of how ridiculous the federal highway system could be like the aerial pictures of Atlanta, right? Which they've wrapped around where black and brown people lived. And in Detroit, there is a one mile highway right through a, what used to be a predominantly black neighborhood. The highway doesn't do anything. It is literally the highway to nowhere and it is, and should be torn down for sure. Wow. I did. I'm going to have to look this up. Yeah, I probably got some of the details wrong for a, uh, my trolls there on Reddit, but I'm, I'm like 90% accurate yeah. about that one mile highway. It's close enough that you can probably Google it and find out what he's talking yeah. about. Editor's note. The one mile highway is in Baltimore, not Detroit. We apologize. Reverend Chris Moore just let me borrow uh, a book called The Broken Heart of America. And it's about all these policies you know, from redlining to the highway system to just all of it, right? In St. Louis. Because evidently, and I haven't read the book yet, so I'm probably messing this up too. But evidently, St. Louis was like the guinea pig for all of these redlining housing policies. And like once, once this became, you know, A-OK in St. Louis, then they just rolled it out to the rest of the country. And yeah, the, I mean, the federal it highway. It is the gateway city, right? Yeah, so, right. And yeah, federal highway program there, just the same as Detroit and Atlanta and all these different places that we've talked about. And again, you don't learn that in school. What you learn in school about the federal highway system is how great it was. Manifest destiny. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. You know, again, Greenwood and Tulsa had streetcars. I know. They had streetcars. It's it's amazing. You look at the pictures and videos of Greenwood, both before and the rebuild, and you see, like, it was what is now sort of considered the urban ideal. It's it's what, you know, 
a lot of the younger generation say, this is the kind of place we want to live in. It's what like Portland is trying to be. That's what Greenwood was. Yeah. And it's, it's heartbreaking, you know, from me selfishly, like I would want to live there and it's not there. And Tulsa has nothing close to it now. And it's, it's one of the many heartbreaking things about knowing what Tulsa could be today if it wasn't for, you know, what happened twice to this area of Tulsa and to the people there. Yeah, we had the most diverse, the most mixed use, the most mixed income, the most pedestrian friendly, the most transit oriented <laughs> neighborhood. I mean, all the buzzwords, all the Chuck Marone. Jeff Speck. Yeah, if he had done if he had done his if Jeff Speck had done his analysis on Greenwood, it would come back very different than what he got for Yeah, he would have been like, this is 100%. You yeah. get an A+. Plus. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Yeah. And yeah, you can you can literally Google Greenwood 1948 to 1952 and see what this was. It's like we had it. We had the ultimate new urbanist neighborhood. And, and it was, it was Jane Jacobs before Jane Jacobs was Jane Jacobs, right? Like it was, the Greenwood knew what it had. Yeah. But the rest of Tulsa didn't. The rest of Tulsa just said like, oh, this is a blighted neighborhood. And you can see on film, it very clearly is not yeah. blighted in any sense of the word. You know, I rem- I don't know if you were here for this, Carlos, because it, it was when we were maybe in middle school, early high school, when they, when they expanded 71st. And they had to go through parts of Midtown that had wealthy white Tilsons in it. And the weird compromises that ended up happening where they had to build these huge walls because God forbid anyone has to look at a car in their backyard. And you look at that and you compare that to what they, they, what they did with 244 and any other construction job in North and East, East Tilsa. And you're like, at least do the same thing you did for like, if you're going to ignore one group, you should have to ignore the other group too. And I don't know. It's just, we sit here and there's going to be a lot of national tension on Tulsa and Oklahoma and we're, someone's going to say something stupid and it's just going to be a conversation about how embarrassing Oklahoma is. And then everyone's going to go home and then we're still going to have to deal with these issues. And again, I'm glad that you wrote this book because it is a reminder that systems are, a lot of systems are meant to be broken and that you don't need someone to believe in you to accomplish something. Yeah. I just, my hope is that these conversations don't end right. That, that again, in spite of what is trying to be accomplished, which is after May 31st, 2021, everybody just goes home and never talks about this again. Right. That, that is the exact opposite of what really happens. That's That's, that's my biggest hope. My biggest hope is that we keep, talking about the massacre, about Greenwood's history, about Greenwood's significance in the civil rights movement, about Greenwood's significance in the federal highway program and how just comparing there was a highway that was meant to build through Maple Ridge, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, so comparing that history to what happened to Greenwood, I hope that conversation comes up. You know, I hope, I, I just hope that we keep having these conversations about why North Tulsa looks the way it looks today and what we can really do to fix it because a golf tournament, Southern Hills is not going to, not going to, 
not going to do anything for anyone in Greenwood. Couldn't they have at least you know, done it at the the Tulsa Country Club, which is sort of in North <laughs> Tulsa? I mean, right, they had to do it in. South did you Tulsa. have to do yeah. it in Southern Hills? Right. I mean, not that that would have been a lot better, but at Pro- least it would have been better. close to Greenwood yeah. doing yeah. it. The, it, it even it, it just looks better <laughs> from a map perspective, right? Exactly. <laughs> just, Dedicating some benches is not going to help. Yeah. These art projects and some of the other projects, I mean, they're they're great. But they're very ephemeral and people forget about them after a very short amount of time. You know, I want to see these continued conversations, these continued policy proposals that get pushed forward. I hope with everything in me that Typros is able to get highway removal on the one voice agenda. I want to see I-244 raised to the ground. Yeah. I, I, and there's it, the conversations I'm hearing and getting the backing of an institution like BMX, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's a real... Possibly, I don't want to help. I don't want to like hope too much because I've done, I've made that mistake several times. Yeah. Mm. What's Ted Lasso say? It's the hope that kills you. Well, right. That's what he was fighting against. That that was the town's motto. Right. So, so, you know, I just, uh, but I do. I hope, I, I hope they get what they are pushing toward um, because it would be amazing. Like that, that would be incredible. And I think it's been interesting to see all of these sort of more grassroots efforts have had maybe more national support even than they've had local support. I mean, you mentioned Fire Little Africa. If you look at at what Tyrants is trying to do with Black Tech Street, you have these people all throughout Greenwood that are trying to make a difference. And it does unfortunately feel like that they're getting more support outside of Tulsa than they do Within Tulsa. Oh, 100%. I mean, I can tell you, I mean, even in our own book, I'm having a talk uh, a little later on with a group in Sacramento. I'm doing another talk with the uh, Holocaust Museum in Illinois. I've already had conversations with groups in New Jersey. We definitely, I mean, there's a, another book publishing company out of Portland who reached out to us to write a children's book version. So, that, I mean, even in our project, there has been tons more support on a national scale than there has been here in Tulsa. We went to several fundraisers in Tulsa that we gave our money to the commission and they're going to do what they're going to do and have a nice day. <laughs> no, well, no, but I mean, I just, but I, I, I just say that to say we have seen that absolutely yeah. for our project 1000%. I can't really re- blame Tulsa necessarily because there are no publishing companies in Tulsa. There aren't, there isn't a major record label in Tulsa. This isn't an Atlanta or a Chicago or a, it's not Motown. They had to go, they had to go to Motown yeah. in order to get really in order to do this project, the justice that it deserves. It's unfortunate that there isn't the industry here to support that. It's unfortunate that there isn't a publishing industry in Tulsa to support that. I'm hoping that, you know, maybe these projects getting the national attention and these documentaries that are being produced in places like LA and Atlanta that Tulsa kind of wakes up and goes, wait, this stuff could have been done here. Why don't we build the creative infrastructure for those projects to be done here? And maybe we won't necessarily have all the brain drain that we have. There's a lot of creative people I know have left because they, their career reaches a certain point to where you can't really do a movie here. You know, you can't publish a book. You can't put out an album. You've got to go outside of Tulsa to, to do these things. 
So maybe that's another victory that we can look forward to, hopefully. So we just just wanted to throw out some details to the listener as far as like when the book's coming out, where they can get the book. Are you thinking about doing an audio version? Like throw out symbols yeah. in and also how they can enroll with Greenwood. Yeah. So the, the best place is thevictoryofgreenwood.com. All of our social media is on there. You can pre-order the book now. If you're a fan of Jeff Bezos, you can pre-order the book on Amazon. Um, the official published date is June 2nd. So that was very intentionally chosen, right? Because we wanted it to be um, the centennial recovery of Greenwood, not the centennial of the massacre. What about local bookstores? We are going to be at Fulton, Magic City, Decapolis, Ida Red, hopefully Witty. So we're reaching out right now to a lot awesome. of those local bookstores and they're being incredibly supportive. So we're, we're shout out to local bookstores. Yes. Yeah. If you can buy um, local. Especially Fulton, they're awesome. But yeah, so we're we're contacting all the all the local book retailers. As far as an audiobook, what our plans are there is to launch a Kickstarter because I really wanted it to be kind of a, a project that the community could participate in. So we're launching a Kickstarter here in the near future to raise the funds to be able to do the audio version, and I'd like to use hopefully a national name. Again, I'll just call it. If it happens, great. If not. And that's cool. But hoping to get somebody like Alfred Woodard uh, or somebody has the ties to Tulsa to do some of their narration. And then maybe because because the book is a, a series of biographies, maybe we get a few different people reading a, a few of the diff- different biographies and have, you know, I, I don't know if that's ever been done in an audio book before. I don't, I don't listen to a lot of audio books, yeah, so I don't know. But I think that might be an interesting yeah. for an audio book project, especially if it's about, you know, different people. So mm-hmm. a couple of different biographies would be read by a couple of different narrators. So that would be really that's cool. kind of the concept of it. And we'll just see how it goes and mm-hmm. see if people are receptive to that. So that's kind of what we have envisioned for the, uh, for the audio book. And we're wanting to launch a podcast like Jesse and I mentioned last time. And we're wanting to do a video series that focuses more on Greenwood of the fifties and sixties and what all that looked like. There's a lot of history there. There's a lot of personal narratives there. There's a lot of stuff I couldn't put in the book just because I didn't have enough. But there's a whole generation of people who remember Greenwood from that time period. And we've got a few interviews done. So we're hoping to do several more and kind of put that into maybe a YouTube series or maybe a documentary. But just kind of getting those stories on video, I think is really important. Awesome. And we'll try to put links to your website and everything else in the show notes so that Absolutely. people yeah. can connect. As soon as you get the Kickstarter out, like let us know that link. Yeah, so, right on. Not just for the selfish reason of, oh, I want to edit that, that audio, yeah. but because it, sh- it should exist. <laughs> uh, so, but our, our, la- our final question when we have people in person is to sort of look up, look around the Rant Nine nerd recording studio and find something that either calls to you or you are so curious about that you need it. You need it. You need us to tell you what it is. Well, the first thing I'm going to point out is I greatly admire your Babylon 5 collection. Yes. Quite impressed. So good. I um, It's on HBO Max now. Yes, it is. And I have been enjoying it. In fact, I, I binged about three episodes last night. Very political for its time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Way ahead of its time. Yeah. yeah. So Politically. loved that show. And, you know, it, like, it, was, it was doing serial, serial storytelling long before it, w- it was hip. And if you want to see what happens when you think someone who has written a five-year story thinks they're only going to have four years to finish it, the fourth season of Babylon 5 <laughs> is probably the most jam-packed of any show I've ever seen. Because it is two seasons in one, and it's incredible. 
And, you know, maybe one day we will get the, the improved special effects. They, they did some work for HBO Max. So I think it looks a little better on widescreen TVs than it, oh, interesting. it did. But yeah. Yeah. So I, I used to work for the company that had the licensing rights to the graphic software that they used to create all the spaceships really? and stuff in that show. So, uh, I, yeah, I just discovered someone took one of the space fighting games and like made a mod where it's all Babylon five ships and apparently it looks really, really good. So I'm gonna try to install it and play it. Oh, that, wow. Nice. Like the, for our listeners who are still listening to this part, uh, <laughs> you the, haven't tuned out yeah, by yeah, now. The, it's the, a great show. Yeah, yeah. The earth, the earth forces have these just like tiny single man ships that could like literally just turn on a dime, like 300, like 180 degrees. And I'm like, man, that'd be fun in a video game. I'd never be able to pull it off, but it was a great show for using sci-fi for what's, what sci-fi is good at, which is talking about differences and othering and how at the end of the day, we all kind of want the same thing. And unless you're, you know, a Vorlon, but that's a, <laughs> that's a deep Babylon five cut there. Again, Marcy Bruno Todd still wants to do a Babylon five and leadership podcast. So, Oh really? Yes. See, I would be really into that. We've got one. We've got one Marcia. All right. Nice. There we go. <laughs> but well, I mean, What's funny is I don't think I have any, other than the DVDs, I don't have any Babylon 5 merch. I need to get some merch. Like yeah. Like a ship or something. So like a huge. That would like, be cool. I do see uh, your Star Trek ships and oh, yeah. all that type of stuff. So yeah. very cool. We'll get a picture with you in a Babylon 5 uh, DVD case. So, well, nice. Carlos, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. It was a great time. Yeah. Thank you all for listening to our conversation with Carlos. Again, he will be talking about The Victory of Greenwood with Magic City Books on May 24th, which you can watch on Facebook or sign up on Magic City Books and you can watch it through Zoom. And he's doing a book signing at All Souls Unitarian Church on May 25th, which is my birthday, at 6 p.m. You can still pre-order his book at victoryofgreenwood.com. Speaking of the internet, which a, which a gentleman in Greenwood invented, please follow Pod for Good on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And please subscribe and leave a review because if you leave a review, we will read it on air as I'm going to do right now. This review from Hubaka. The review is titled, Who the F is Chris Miller? And the review is, He is way better than that Jesse fellow. So as we said, if you leave a review, I will read it online, even if that review is from my co-host saying how much better he is than me. What do you mean? So, you, it, it could have been could be anybody. Anyone. That's right. Listen, at least, at least this a-hole gave us five stars. So... <laughs> That's really all I care about. <laughs> As always, get it done, Tulsa. And if you are not vaccinated yet, one, get vaccinated, you dumb dumb. And two, wear a mask when you're told to. Also, down with the IDL. <laughs>